Sun Life Community Church came into being as the result of a compelling vision for a different kind of church, interested in what we call the Sun Life, experiencing and sharing the life of God's Son. Perhaps your heart is burdened these days. We invite you to allow the Word of God through the words of this message to bring rest to your soul and joy to your heart. Now this morning on this First Fruit Sunday, I want to draw your attention to a great hope. We've been talking about hope for a long, long time in in, uh, our congregation. We discovered 22 hope-generating revelations in in the book of Revelation, particularly over the last few months. And now we've been discussing for about six weeks how to deploy, how to put hope to work in our life. It's one thing to have hope, you know, in our, in our congregation and as a fellowship to be people of hope that we know the hopes in the scripture, but how do we get the hope into us? And then how do we get the hope through us into our life circumstances? And that's what we've been talking about. How to deploy, how to put to work the hope we find in the scripture into the realities of our life. So far, we've discussed five ways to do that five particular hopes that God would give his people and put them to work, making changes, alterations, challenges in our life. Today, we come to the sixth one. We've discovered it in the scripture, and I believe it's one, if it goes to work in us, can powerfully impact our world when you and I deploy it right into the realities of our lives. So here it is. First box there, my hope discovered. What is it today? These are personal hopes. Make make this one yours, as well as it being mine. My hope discovered. John writes, Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice... He judges and wages war. And now I want to buttress that revelation that John received with a scripture that we find in the book of Hebrews, but the writer of Hebrews is quoting directly from the Old Testament, from the book of Psalms. So this is Hebrews 1.8, and it's also Psalm 45.6. And here the writer says, talking of Jesus Christ, But about the Son, he, that is the Father in heaven, says, Your throne, O God, will last forever, ever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Point we're making this morning, just briefly, is that God cares deeply about justice. He demands it of those who are in positions of authority because he is just. He's a just God. He despises unfair to say nothing of unkind treatment of people. Listen to me now as I just read some additional scriptures and and let them just pile up impact in your mind and heart. These are all Old Testament scriptures because it was only in Old Testament days that there there were rulers on earth who were directly and even constitutionally connected to the God above who ruled over them. 
these scriptures written in such a time to and about such leaders who were absolutely under and knew they were under and responsible to the God of heaven. Here's what we read. And these scriptures express some of the core values of the kingdom that Jesus Christ himself will one day establish. Here we go. Oldest book, perhaps, in the, New, in the Old Testament, Job. Job 34.12, Job says, It is unthinkable. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. It's unthinkable. It could never happen. It never has happened and never will happen. David, writing in Psalm 33, verse 5, says this, The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. You can't love and treat people unjustly. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. And then how about this verse that usually comes up around Christmas time? It comes from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah and referring to the great promised one. As it talks about that one to come, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, it says of the increase of his government. That's the, the Messiah who will come someday. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And then the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah Chapter 23, verse 5, we read, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. And a final one, in this section, Jeremiah 9, verse 24, But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight. There can be no doubt that our God is a God of justice and that he wants all who take up the leadership mantle on this earth to govern justly. But here's a sad fact. The sad fact is there is no value of God's that falls prey to man's reprobate nature more quickly than justice. Men twist things and abuse people for their own ends, and thus societies of mankind become corrupt and unjust. Listen to the way Isaiah and Amos expressed the conditions way back in their day. Isaiah chapter 20, 59, verse 14, he says, And judgment is turned away backward, and justice stands afar off. Truth is fallen in the street, and equity, fairness, cannot enter. Amos. Chapter 5, verse 7, 
we read, there are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. Every society known to man has eventually fallen in upon itself. Greed and lust for power overwhelm the urge to care for the concerns that justice would raise. We are perhaps seeing the beginnings of such a fall in our own land. Justice, or the quest for justice, is being turned into bitterness and nastiness. Now, our study of the book of Revelation, we spent months in it, and not just to study it and then lay it aside, we need to learn from it. Our study of the book of Revelation has made clear that this world is heading toward a day with, where injustice will prevail and human society will fail. It's coming. We would not want it to be our day, just like those of past generations would not want it to have been, and it turned out not to be their day. But we do know eventually the destiny of this world is not toward better and better. Corrupt human beings will finally corrupt the whole thing, and human society will fail, and evil men will arise, agents of the devil himself who will just bring about a total control over this earth. I trust it's not this day. I trust that we're not on the verge of it, but we're on the verge. There are things going on that could be heading in the direction of what the Bible tells us the final destination is. We don't know that. We don't know that, but we watch. See, my hope is not in men getting their act together and bringing themselves back under the authority and direction of God. Here's my hope in this regard. I define it in clearly revealed biblical terms. So here we go. My hope defined now in an expectant form, I'd put it. There is coming a day when the Son of God will rule over the entire earth in justice. That's after men make a mess of it. That's after human society worldwide implodes. That's after injustice runs amok and lives are destroyed globally and totally. There is coming a day, though, when that one that Isaiah wrote about will appear and he will take up the throne. The book of Revelation tells us that as well. There is coming a day when the Son of God will rule over the entire earth in justice. Maybe between this day and that day, there will be many opportunities for many nations where godly men and women can rise up and lead justly and righteously and with goodness. We don't know. We don't know the plans of God, but we can put our hope in this, that I've said there is coming a day, what God has revealed, when the Son of God will rule over the entire earth in justice. 
and everywhere justice will prevail, fair and equitable treatment of all. This is the only hope for mankind, for the creation of a true global society. Jesus is a globalist. The whole world will someday be united under his authority. Now, that's a global community I can enjoy being part of. But you put some fallen human being in charge of a global community, and, and it's just going to be one thing after another. Someday. Someday Jesus will come and bring all things together under his authority and power. It will be a time with just, when justice will truly prevail. A time when all human beings will be treated fairly and equitably. Thy kingdom come, Jesus taught us to pray. That's what he was praying for. That's what he taught us to ask the Father to, to bring into being. He, people who know the Lord, who love the Lord, born again people have been praying that prayer since Jesus taught it in the first century. They could imagine it. They could envision it. I trust we can too. But God is mysterious in his purposes. His timing is seldom our timing. He dwells in eternity, <clears throat> and a thousand years to him is like a day. He's almost infinitely patient where we have trouble being patient till the end of this service. But there is coming a day when his kingdom will come, and Jesus Christ will rule over all in a glorious setting, a perfect setting, as close to a perfection on a fallen world, still with fallen human beings as part of it, as can be possible. But that day is coming. It's promised. I'm putting my hope in it. So in light of the hope that I have of that coming day, because I don't think I'm going to get to enjoy that day. I'm going to watch from heaven. See, even if that day were only one, seven years of tribulation away, I don't plan to be here during those seven years of tribulation. Do you? I plan to be caught up out of this place when Jesus returns for his church before that period ever begins. And we will be in heaven in a glorified state. We will have been resurrected. Those of us who have died and those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up, changed, and meet him and forever be with the Lord in a, in a heavenly situation. And the seven years will go by. And Christ will return in power and glory and establish a kingdom that will be a thousand years long. But that will be on this fallen earth, and that will be made up of all the people who are alive at the time that he comes. And you and I believe will be watching from heaven. But we'll see this hope we have come to fruition, even if we don't enjoy it firsthand. So if we're probably not going to enjoy it firsthand, how can it impact our life? Except to say, boy, I'm glad I'm going to be out of here one of these days. Well, here's how I believe that we who are linked 
to the Savior. We who are linked to the coming King by faith, we who are being transformed little by little by the Spirit of God into his very likeness, and part of his commitment is to rule with justice, then that should be part of us as well. And so here's my hope deployed. Here's how we express it. Since my hope is in the fact that the Lord Jesus will one day rule over the entire earth, <clears throat> excuse me, in justice, since that's my hope, I will seek to treat every human being I meet fairly and justly. I will give them what they deserve. Now, that's a familiar phrase to some of us, isn't it? I tell you, they ought to get what they deserve. I'm going to give you what's coming to you. Well, that's not the way I'm using the phrase because there are certain things that every human being deserves from you and me as a child of God. And we need to give those things. And so we say here, that is, I will give them what they deserve to receive and expect to receive from me as a follower of Christ. I'm going to treat them with justice and with all the things that as a child of God, trying to represent Jesus Christ in this world, all the things that they deserve to receive from one of us. So here we go. I just want to mention three of them. You let them work on your mind and heart this week, and I'm just going to go through them pretty quickly. Three applications. One, I will treat all people I meet with dignity. It's what they deserve. All people deserve to be treated with respect. That's because they each bear the image of God on them. When you meet a human being, if you want to look at it this way, you're meeting a little bit of God himself. Now, you're going to mess with God? You're going to spit at God? You're going to yell and scream at God? This human being has the image of God. He's not God, don't misunderstand, but he has the image of God. He's been made in the likeness of God. Genesis 1.26, it says, let us make man in our image. That was the design for man. As much as I love my pets, as much as I believe they talk to me and I talk to them, and they might understand me better than anybody else, they're not in the image of God. We can learn from them. We can learn to relate to our Heavenly Father the way that they relate to us, the way they trust us, the way they look to us, the way they snuggle up next to us, especially the little ones. If I see some of you have huge dogs that you snuggle up with. But see, people, people have been made in the image of God. And they, they have, a, they have a, a specialness to God that we don't dare trample on. James, the half-brother of Jesus, understood this in the first century. In the book of James, chapter 3, verse 9, he says, commenting on human fallen society, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. That's what we Christians do. James was a follower of Jesus Christ, a born-again man by the time he wrote these words. And he says, that's what we do. Our tongues are good for that. 
With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. That's Jesus and our Abba Father. And he says, though, we curse men who have been made in God's image. And then he says, this should not be. It's really unthinkable. It's contrary. It's an internal contradiction. We praise God, and of course we do. Why wouldn't we? But then here's something that is linked to God by nature, and, and we can, uh, you know, it's not God. It's not perfect. It's, in fact, sometimes it's rather ugly and miserable and nasty, and, and it doesn't look like God at all. But the Bible says it's made in the image of God, this human being. And, and so just because of God's imprint upon this human being, no matter how changed, how fallen, even us in our own worst state, we should still be treated with respect for God's sake. I will treat all people I meet with dignity because someday Jesus will be in the flesh here again and he will do that. When he walked on this earth, he already demonstrated that ability. And one day when he rules over all the world as the king of the world, he won't be all caught up in his own importance. He will still be as tender and compassionate and treat every human being as the very special, unique, living creature they are. And we should do the same no matter, no matter what form they come in. And no matter how bad the day is they're having. And no matter how twisted sometimes their thinking might get, even as they are victimized by the very enemy of our souls. Second thing. I will treat all people I meet with honesty. It's what they deserve. All people deserve to know the truth. And here's one big truth. They need to know. All people need to know. They will each face a final judgment. Because they have been made in the image of God. They are the offspring, as it were, of God. And they will be answerable to him. They need to know that. This is where the Apostle Paul began when, when he began to address a, a group of Greek philosophers. They didn't know any Old Testament information. They didn't know Abraham. They knew the Greek mythologies. They knew the Greek philosophies. They debated them all the time. It's recorded in Acts chapter 17. And when Paul was meeting with them, and of all the things that he believed they needed to know, this became the most fundamental thing. He said this, Acts chapter 17, verse 31, God, he'd already pointed out to them that there is a God who has created all things. And he says, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. God, the creator of all things, has set a day. And even if you die before that day comes, God will resurrect you for that moment of judgment. All the world 
He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. That means nobody skates by. Nothing that's gone on is overlooked or forgotten. God is a just God. And he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. That's Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ returns, there will be great judgment upon all those who have ever lived. And Paul says, you need to know this. Even if you solve every philosophical riddle that you, that you uh, debate back and forth, know this. The God who has created all things has set a day when he will judge the world with justice, but you will be standing before him. You will be answerable to him, and he will judge you by the quality of life lived by Jesus himself. Now, you need to know that. All human beings need to know that. We don't need to settle political differences. We don't need to settle all the issues and the, the where's, how we can do a certain thing or what should be the thing we do. This we need to settle. This we need to know. And this is what we need to tell. There's coming a day. There's coming a day. A day's been set by the creator himself that he will judge the entire earth justly, honestly, accurately. And he will do it by the man comparing and allowing Jesus Christ when he lived an earthly life as a human being, he will be the standard by which we are all judged. That's a scary thought. And way too many people never think it even once. So if we really believe, if we have the hope that Jesus Christ himself will someday reign and establish his kingdom on this earth, then we need to know that we need to treat people with honesty and let them know the most important truths that, that they could ever embrace because their eternal destiny rides on it. Now, there's many more questions. You share that with somebody, God's going to judge the whole earth. That leads to a host of questions. What does it mean to judge me according to the most perfect man who ever lived? Of course I'm going to fall short. Of course I'm going to, you know, is there any hope? For, there's no hope for me then. Well, see, now we can talk about the rest of the good news of the gospel that we know. There's more truths to share. But the first truth is this one. Because if they don't embrace this one, they have no need in their mind to hear any more. I'm not so bad. Third thing. I will treat all people I meet with love. This is what they deserve. All people deserve to be treated benevolently. That's what agape love really is. They just want good for people. They just want the best for people. 
Doesn't mean to get all fuzzy feeling about it, but just want the best for people. See, all people, they are the ones upon whom God's love is targeted. John 3.16, for God so loved me. No, what does it say? The world. How many of us are in the world right now? Come on, this is just a wake-up test. We're all in the world right now. Okay, and God loves the world. That is, the world of mankind. He loves people, all of them. So there we are. That might be a pretty good start for us. Treat people with dignity, with honesty, and love. It's going to wind up with you living a pretty just life. Treating people with justice and fairness. If you treat them with dignity, with honesty, and with love. Give them exactly what they deserve and should expect to receive from followers of Jesus Christ. Oh, the greatest shame in the world. One of the greatest tragedies in the world is when people who are identified with Jesus Christ fail to give to people what they deserve and what they expect to receive from a genuine Christian. We need to live as genuine Christians, as Jesus would have us live and give to all people around us the very things Jesus gave all the time. Treat them fairly, justly. Because you see, we are the only ones who can. No fallen sinner can really treat anybody absolutely fairly and justly. There's always a fleshly internal agenda that will affect, even if they think they're being fair, even if they think they're treating people justly, there's always other stuff that enters in. Only a born-again Christian, filled with and led by and controlled by the Holy Spirit, can possibly live justly in this world. And yet with the Holy Spirit, we can. So let's. Let's do it. Let's be aware. We can't change the whole society. We, well, unless God works a miracle, but we can be us. You can be you right where you are. Even when you encounter injustice, even when you encounter unfair treatment, it doesn't have to affect the way you function the way we function. Because only Christians can function that way in this fallen world. And when we do, we can create a stir. We can create a stir to consistently live justly in this world and treat people fairly and lovingly with dignity and respect and with honesty it just can't go unnoticed for long. And so our final thought says this, only God's grace can bring true justice to human society. The founders of this country knew about that grace, tried to rely upon it, 
tried to write documents that would make it happen forever, and you can't. What we need is a new flood of grace, an awakening, a renewal, first in the lives of believers that we truly become grace-filled people, and then that's affected in every relationship we have. And if God would so choose to use that that you and I might begin to generate and thousands of other believers would begin to generate, if he would use that to bring a renewal in this land, it would be awesome. We don't know the will of God except for us individually. So let us resolve, put our hope in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the glorious kingdom, and lets us almost live like we're part of it already. Catch the values of it and express them and share them and let them impact people around us for good. Heavenly Father, that's what we, we understand you desire. A fallen world has always been what this world has been, ever since Adam and Eve made the, the fall. And human passions have always been problems. Human desires have always gotten in the way of your desires. Father, we're fallen people. We're sinful. We're fleshly. That's why we need one another to just remind ourselves that there's a higher calling here. And we've seen it demonstrated in the life of Jesus Christ. And you've given us your Holy Spirit to, to bring about a similarity between us and Jesus Christ. And Father, as we take steps in that direction, as your Holy Spirit works through us, we know grace will be released from us. And lives, one by one, will be affected. They will be blessed. Their circumstances will be made better because we're here. And some of them will want more than just a better earthly circumstance. Some of them will discover the, the hunger in their heart to have an eternal, an eternal answer. No, oh, Father, if we could give that, what a blessing that would be. So guide us and remind us and Keep us on point, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Mark, for encouragement this morning. It was a long road to the cross, over 30 years from the birth of Christ to that cross. But it showed the Father's deep, deep love for us. As you prepare your hearts as we transition to the communion table this morning. Only son to make a wretch he 
the Father turns his face away as wounds which other chosen one bring men his sons to glory. That's our focus. Whenever we come to communion time, we come to a place where, where our thoughts go right to Calvary. Jesus dying for us. Jesus, as a result of living that perfect life that none of us could ever live, but he qualified as a full-blown human being. He lived a perfect life before his heavenly father. No sin in him. Not at all. Sin filling us. All the men around that cross, the women around the cross, the dear ones he loved, his own mother was there. They were all sinners. They were all sinners. Some of them were probably thinking horrible thoughts about those Roman executioners. Some of them probably thought if they had the opportunity, they, they would like to just settle it right there. They were sinners. And on the cross is one who says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Do you realize how much that covers? How much freedom would we feel if we look at the worst of things that happen anywhere around us and, and we're able to say, Father, they don't even know what they're doing? You say, well, they sure do. They sure do. 
No, not really. They don't even know what they're doing. They don't even know who has control of them. They don't even know how fallen their, their inner nature is. They, they don't even know there's a loving God who could change them from darkness to light. They don't have a clue. They don't have a clue any more than the soldiers who were driving the nails into Christ's hands really knew what they were doing. They were carrying on a task, fulfilling an agenda given to them by somebody else. And they didn't have a clue that laying there, being prepared to be lifted up, was the Son of God. God himself, in the flesh, perfect humanity, right there, and, and they're treating him like the worst of criminals, they didn't have a clue. And Jesus could see them for what they really were. He says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Nobody else around the cross was saying that. And so, when we gather around Christ in our own little time frame, and our sins are accumulated one by one and, and really put him on the cross just because he has to pay for them all. And you and I take our turn to drive the nails in his hands, not even knowing that the misdeeds we are doing are actually doing that. So we don't know what we're doing either. We just think we're messing up. We might even think we're we're getting ahead. We might think all kinds of things, but we never think that we're actually driving nails into Christ's hands, making him die if he was going to be a savior. And so at communion, we're drawn near to that. We're drawn close to it. We commune with the very moment. But we also remember something, don't we? Jesus died for us. He said to his disciples, before he gave his life, he took a piece of bread and he took a glass of wine and he said to them, this, this bread is my body, which is given for you. He let him know nobody was taking anything from him at all. Nobody was killing him, actually. He was laying down his life himself. This is my body, which is given to you. The cup, this is the new covenant in my blood, my lifeblood. But a covenant means a new agreement. That things can be made new and good and proper, because on the other end of this covenant is God Almighty himself. And he says, I offer you. I offer you through the death of my son eternal life. Will you take it? Have you taken it? Do you know that you have a Savior, and is he your Savior for sure? Is he precious to you this moment? 
communion is a chance to commune with him in some way. In some way, the living Christ from heaven itself is able to contact, touch us spiritually through communion. This is my body. There's something to that. This is my blood. There's something to that. Just open your heart and receive it fully. Let the whole life of Christ rush into you. And I'll pray that in each of us it lasts through this whole day, tomorrow, the next day, until we sense it really has entered into me, the life of Christ. Let communion be that powerful beginning and that powerful encouragement. We hope this message has inspired you to live the sun life together with us. If you are near Apple Valley, California this weekend, we invite you to join us in person Sunday morning or through our live broadcast. All the details are on our website at sunlifecommunitychurch.com.